Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country. There's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie. Hi, welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. I grew up in central Illinois. I live about 15 minutes from the largest Amish community in Illinois, in Arthur, where there are 4,500 Amish people living. And most of us, myself included, really have just a basic understanding of the Amish. Most of us know they drive horse and buggies. Most of us know they dress a little more plainly than the rest of us do. Most of us know that they do not have electricity. But my very first guest, my very first show, is Wilmer Otto, who is a businessman who lives in Arcola, Illinois, and is a world traveler. Wilmer has a very interesting background. And I'd love for you, Wilmer, to uh, welcome to the show. I'm so excited. You know, a lot of times they say they save the best for last, but I think I got the best for the first show. I'm just so delighted that you have taken the time to come and educate all of us. This might take a lot more than one segment, one episode, but I'm uh, really delighted. And I've just, I want to, I want to call this mysteries and misconceptions about the Amish because I think all those things apply. So uh, welcome to the show and please introduce yourself and give us a little background on your, on your life and your history. Well, Wendy, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. Uh, I've admired your work for many years and hope that this collaboration will be fruitful in terms of educating uh, the world at large about this unique and interesting group called the Old Order Amish. I was raised uh, as an Amish lad. My parents were Amish until I was 10 years old, and then they joined the Mennonite Church. And so uh, with that segue, they, they started having electricity in the home, driving cars, allowing higher education, and um, allowed the world to open a little broader for us nine kids that they raised. Uh, large families are part of the Amish culture. And so through that, I was able to finish Arcola High School and then go to college one year at Temple University in Philadelphia and three years at Eastern Mennonite College in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And um, while in my senior year at Eastern Mennonite College, or EMU as it's now called, I traveled with about 20 other students around Europe with a um, study group and a professor and indoctrinated myself or familiarized myself, we'll say, with the sites of the Anabaptist movement that led to the Old Order Amish, as well as general European history. And from that beginning uh, of international travel, um, I've been interested ever since and been doing it ever since. Hmm. So what is the basic difference? Could you explain to us the basic difference between Old Order Amish and Mennonites? Well, the movement began in Zurich, Switzerland, and in 1525, the 
first followers of this movement were known as Swiss Brethren. Uh, it wasn't until about uh, 1930 that the reference to them as Anabaptists became known. But since then, they've pretty much that umbrella, Anabaptist, which is a German word for meaning being baptized again, uh, mm. has applied to the Mennonites, the Hutterites, the uh, River Brethren, and at least 20 other related wings of that first movement. And their core beliefs, which are shared by all of these wings, were one, that one had to be baptized as an adult, knowing what commitment was being made by baptism, rather than as a child, which in the medieval period and in the Renaissance period, that baptism as a child meant that you were a citizen of that area. And so it, rec it recognized citizenship as well as church membership. So, the, so being baptized as an adult and knowing the commitment and being committed to that was the first core. The second uh, pillar, we'll call it, was their belief in pacifism. So they believed in um, pacifism as the second pillar of their faith, and that meant they could do no harm to anyone else, even if it meant defending themselves from harm. And so that caused a rift between them and their neighbors and their rulers, because at that point, Europe was hysterical about the Turks and the Muslims invading and potentially taking over all of Northern Europe. And so if you weren't willing to fight to defend your country, then you were really uh, suspect and uh, subject to punishment. And then the third core belief or pillar was separation of church and state. And uh, they were the initiators of that concept that adopted it, you know, fully. They felt that the state should not dictate to the church what church beliefs ought to be. And it wasn't until 250 years later that the United States was formed that the first country that accepted the principle of separation in church and state existed. And so it was uh, after that that many of the Anabaptist-related groups began moving to North America, particularly to Pennsylvania, because William Penn offered not only separation of church and state, but also a place where their pacifism was accepted and they were not required to join local militias, so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are the three core beliefs, their adult baptism, their pacifism, and the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You asked the question, I'm sorry, I missed your question, and that was the difference between the Mennonites and the Old Order of Amish is that gradually various writers and leaders became prominent in the Anabaptist movement, and one of the most prominent became a Dutch fellow named Benno Simons, and uh, he wrote books that were reprinted and uh, circulated all over Europe, and so pretty quickly his followers became known as Mennonites. And when the Amish first came to North America, they came shortly after there had been a division in Europe, and a fellow named Jacob Amon felt that the Mennonites were getting too lax in their practice of uh, their religion and were accepting 
changes that he felt were not uh, appropriate for a Christian. And so the Amun followers became known as Amish. And so mm. when the my forebears came to North America, they were known as Amish Mennonites, meaning a group within the Mennonites. Over time, the Amish Mennonites had a similar division in which uh, some of the change-minded and progressive Amish Mennonites wanted to allow higher education and uh, more adaptation of their general culture of the neighbors. And uh, so the progressive Amish Mennonites gradually joined the Mennonite denomination, and the more conservative or, or traditional-minded became known as Old Order Amish. And that group uh, was, title was applied in about 1885 going forward. You can hear of the Old Order Amish, the Old Order Amish. Hmm. Hmm. So is Arthur considered a more liberal or conservative community? I think a lot of people don't realize that in different areas of the country, that um, we discussed this a little bit the other day, that, that in different areas of the country that there are different ways of wearing different bonnets, different, different kinds of buggies, um, totally different opinions about photography, taking pictures of their faces, which is still here, uh, something that I, I know to respect their belief not to have, that, not to have their pictures taken. But um, is Arthur considered a liberal or conservative community? It's remarkable because... A historian that I that gave a lecture talked about the phenomena that the further west you moved as North America developed from 1737 onward, uh, the more progressive and change-minded the Mennonites and the Amish Mennonites became. So I recently uh, had Amish friends that had visited Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, which is a more conservative community. And uh, this person said, I'm not sure I could live in Lancaster. To an outsider, the differences are uh, almost impossible to detect. But uh, how they practice some of their church regulations is one big difference. And that would be in terms of when one is excommunicated from the local Amish church, if the uh, person demonstrates a moral life, and particularly if they associate and join another sister church, such as the Mennonites, then they remove them from being in the band, even though they're excommunicated, they're no longer shunned or banned. Or hmm. in Lancaster, once you're in the band, it's for life, unless you come oh back to the Oh my gosh. Hmm. That's one difference, but in general, yeah, the West you get, you have Kansas Amish who are farming with tractors. Uh, and I think in some cases may have electricity in their home, but they still dress uh, conservatively and tend to have, you know, the same core beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting um, that there are so many differences within the different Amish communities, but yet that the same core beliefs are still there. Um, how about explaining a little bit you, that the Illinois Amish Heritage Center, since you've, you've, you live such a different life than somebody who has the family stayed in the Amish community, but yet you're, you know, you're still so in touch with your roots 
and um, want to educate people like me. I love to go to the Eleanor Amish Heritage Center. There's just, you have those two beautiful homes that have been restored. And I I think from, from when you had the barn raising there last October that everybody in the community has some relationship to the to the houses or that barn that was moved there. That um, sense of community never leaves you, does it? And the, your heritage is very important to keep people to understand about that, isn't it? Well, uh, thank you. Yeah, that that project is uh, dear to my heart. I uh, am chairman of the board, but there are other people that are putting just as much and maybe more energy into creating that campus. Uh, our objective there is education. We have a number of tourists who are simply gawkers and they're not really interested in learning. They just want to get some interesting photos. And then you have tourists that we call the seekers who really do want to learn. And uh, until that facility was built, um, there really wasn't a good opportunity other than just through engagement with the Amish who have cottage industries and people, uh, you know, connect with them there you know, and receive some information, just an informal conversation. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's our objective at the Illinois Amish Heritage Center. Uh, I still have Amish aunts and uncles and cousins, feel very close to them. We have family gatherings. And so, uh, yeah, my life is very different from them, but I, I respect them and feel very close to them. Sure. That's a, uh, that's an admirable thing because I find um, so many, seems like a lot of the younger generation, I'm not saying Amish, but a lot of people just really have no interest in their roots. Um, how much, I know that the young people have their rumspringer where they have their time to explore the world. Is that, um, can you explain that a little bit to people? I know there are some things people can see on, as we've talked about, some so-called reality TV shows or some things they might have read about, but could you explain Rumspringa a little bit to us? I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Sure, that's a, a very that that's a topic that comes up frequently because of the exposure that reality TVs have given. Uh, you know, my view is that people who watch the reality TV for information about the Amish end up knowing less than they did before they watched the show. <laughs> so many uh, misinformation and misconceptions are promulgated. But the uh, the Rumspringer phase is when the Amish allow their kids a little more uh, latitude to experience the world um, without, you know, cutting them off uh, socially or or excommunicating them in the back. Uh, always these this exploration takes place before they join the church, which can be anywhere between the age of 19 and 25 or even older. And so uh, once they've joined the church, then they do not have cars, which are not permitted, or dress in uh, what they call English clothes, which anybody who is not Amish is English in general. Uh, you know, you can be American Indian or you can be some other culture, but if you're not Amish, that makes you one of the English because you speak English. Mm -hmm. So um, about 15%, maybe 20% of the Amish young people will go so far as to dress with the Western 
uh, English style dress, and and most of them do not. They stay within the guidelines that they've been raised, but the twenty percent that are in the uh, more adventurous stage, I'll call it, do get all the publicity and all the notoriety. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Rome Spring stage is when some of the young people, for example, will experiment with alcohol and they'll pretty quickly uh, find out that they're not used to that and um, behave inappropriately. But that may happen once or twice and then they're over. They don't want to experience that. Hmm. So the Amish young people are like teenagers. You know, they want to get out from under their parents' thumb, some of them, and Hmm. uh, uh, experiment with the broader world. But eighty-five percent of their young people choose to stay Amish and uh, stay within the church guidelines. It's a very interesting. It's a good statistic to know. Um, I know I've lived where I'm at, a mile north of Cooks Mill, a little town not far from me. That's kind of I'm the southern tip of the Amish community. I have seen such an increase in. Uh, passenger vans, people being hauled to work. There is so much. You mentioned cottage industries um, earlier and used to be, I know when my dad was a kid, nobody, you know, I doubt there were, were, number one, there weren't factories to work in, but I'm sure economics have um, forced the Amish to have to change some of their lifestyles too. I see women working out in the field occasionally doing things that I would have never seen when I moved up here 30 years ago, at least I don't believe I had seen it, but I know that that's changed a lot too. So, um, and, and that brings the question of a lot of people think Amish people don't pay taxes. Uh, they, and, and could you explain a little bit about, I know you know about taxes being a businessman that you are, and please explain that Amish people of course do pay taxes and, could you also touch on Social Security for those who work in a, a factory, if they have to pay into that or not? It, it is a question that I get asked a lot. Do they pay taxes? And yes, they do. They pay state taxes. They pay federal taxes, uh, drainage district taxes on on their land, property taxes. They pay all of that. The only exception is because of their belief that they should take care of their own elderly or ill people. And so they have gotten exemption from the social security system and they don't pay into social security, but then they don't draw on it either. But then they do as a church, uh, take up offerings and make uh, assessments of members to pay into a common fund and then uh, make sure that people who, who have economic uh, needs, those needs are met. Uh, Hmm. Whether it's a large medical bill, whether it's just housing, here comes the train. (laughs) So, uh, in addition to the church offerings, they have large uh, benefit auctions and uh, will raise three or four hundred thousand dollars in a single day just from auctioning items that they have made for the auction, such as furniture or quilts or, uh, you know, baked goods. Uh, but they will have several of those each year. At the, uh, at the current level, they are raising about a million dollars every three months. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah, uh, it is significant. And as medical costs have skyrocketed, it has posed a real burden on them. Uh, but, you know, they are committed to that. And um, they figure out a way to cover those costs. The, hmm. the, the more wealthy Amish are expected to pay their own medical bills as they can. But if it's an exorbitant bill, like $100,000 or more, uh, then they will bring that to the deacon of the church. Each hmm. church has uh, a bishop, two ministers, and a deacon within that congregation. Hmm. So the deacon basically takes care of financial issues. Um, and the bishop and the two ministers are responsible for preaching and, and management within the congregation for congregational issues. Hmm. How are those people chosen for those for those titles, for those responsibilities? The Amish use a system that's referred to as, in the Bible as uh, drawing a lot. And basically, um, to become a minister, well, when you're baptized, you are asked to make a commitment that if the lot, quote, falls on you, that, that's the term they use, that you will accept it and do your duty either as a deacon, minister, or bishop. So um, the minister dies or moves away or for some reason is no longer able to serve, they will uh, take the voice of the church with each person being asked to give a nomination of someone they think would be qualified to be in the ministry. And anybody that receives three nominations is then put in the lot. And so on the day of the decision or the day of the, the lot, uh, it's a Sunday morning church service, and those in the lot uh, take a place on a bench at the front of the room. Uh, there's a sermon, uh, and then the minister, the bishop, has gotten an equal number of songbooks to, to equal the number of men in the lot, and it's always men. They do not have women in the ministry. Um, and places them on a bench in front of the uh, persons in the lot. And then each person is asked to step forward and draw a book. And so when they all have a book, then the bishop comes down the line and starts opening the book, the song book, to see which one has a little strip of paper that was placed in the book indicating that person would be chosen. And um, so it's pretty tense. Uh, nobody really wants to be in the lot or in the ministry because it is a lot of extra responsibility, and they take that mm. seriously. Um, oh, wow. But eventually they find somebody with it, and um, that person then uh, kneels, and the bishop puts his hands on his head, prays over him, and when he stands up, he's a minister. Okay. That's so interesting. I was lucky enough, I feel very privileged to have attended an Amish church service just around the corner from me several years ago. And it was three hours, all in German, Dutch, whatever, which, whichever language would that be, Dutch, German. But the, the, uh, for the three hours, I only heard one phrase that I understood, and that was Ronald Reagan assassination attempt. And I heard nothing else that was in English <laughs> But um, what do, do they do? They is it in German that they speak, Walmer? Uh, well, the, yeah, the the church services um, 
are normally preached and, and uh, conducted in uh, the high German, Lutheran German, mm. the, the German that's in the Lutheran Bible. But the Amish have, from the European times, developed their own dialect that comes from an area in southwestern German, Germany called Swabia. And, uh, and that language is, is identifiable by Swabians who come to the U.S. Um, so that is a dialect, but it isn't written or wasn't until recently some linguists decided to um, translate it into a written form. But um, what I see as I attend their services is more and more of the younger ministers particularly will revert to the Swabish or Dutch, as we would call it. Even Dutch is not Holland. It's uh, uh, Deutsch is a German word for German, Deutsch. So mm. that got transformed into Dutch. You know, so a Dutchman or a Dutch language uh, refers to the Amish. So anyway, uh, that's how their services are conducted, mostly in high German, but some uh, vernacular also. They will occasionally make references to current events, but they generally stay away from that. They discourage members from voting because they feel their role is not to tell the government what to do. Uh, they should be submissive to the government, and that's it. Uh, hmm. Some will vote. They tend to be conservative in their outlook, and so there's a really heated election, like the last several have been, mm -hmm. you'll find some Amish that uh, go to the polls, but most do not. Mm -hmm. A lot of Mennonites, I know I, I've seen a lot of, in this community, I was an election judge, and there were many Mennonites that I saw voting in there. I don't recall seeing Amish, but that doesn't mean that I that they weren't there at that particular um, polling place. But um, So they're not politically active. But, you know, I do know that during COVID, when the schools were shut down, that the Amish school, at least across the road from me, was also shut down. So they did have they did have respect for that mandate. I, I at least that's what I remember. But I don't remember, you know, they didn't um, wear masks and things because I guess they didn't subscribe to that being a significant danger. I really don't. You know, would you know more about that than I would? about COVID and, and Amish? Well, yeah, the, that pandemic posed uh, new challenges for everyone, including the mm -hmm. Amish. Um, initially, they, you know, tried to abide by the mandates, although, you know, when the requirement to wear masks when in public was issued, most of them didn't follow that. Um, you know, the <laughs> the suspicion is that they did not suffer as many deaths from the pandemic as people expected because they were not abiding by the mass uh, mandate. The, uh, I mean, they pretty quickly started having church services again in hmm. these gathering places where singing is one of the ways that this virus gets spread. And they were hmm. doing that a lot. Hmm. Um, and some of them did catch COVID, but not nearly to the extent that um, people believed. There's mm -hmm. a suspicion that their being around livestock exposes them to a variety of 
viruses and their body develops um, antibodies or immunity to a variety of uh, viruses. And that seems to strengthen their system where they could not succumb to the COVID virus as much as a broader population that were in a more sterile environments. Well, I, I'm sure that's true because living across the, the, the road from that Amish school, the coldest of days, those kids are out there playing. And, you know, they're not bundled up in eight layers like we are. I'm sure they are layered up, but they don't, you know, I think they're pretty hardy individuals for the most part and um, pretty, pretty tough. Um, you mentioned about singing. And is it Gregorian chants that they do? Because I know that their music is all a cappella, if I'm not mistaken. And is there such a thing as um, if somebody would start playing an instrument, say, you know, a, a young person, that are instruments prohibited in the Amish communities? Or is that just a myth? Uh, it's not a myth. They do not have uh, musical instruments in church or in the home except uh, some teenagers in their experimenting stage will get a guitar and learn how to play it. Uh, my mother's era, they learned how to play the accordion. That seemed to be a big draw. But, um, you know, when they join the church, then they uh, put that away and they don't do that. Their singing style is really unique and various musicologists and people have studied as to where that might come there isn't a really good answer. It's a very slow, drawn-out, uh, unison singing, not four-part harmony. Mm -hmm. But um, even when they were in Europe in the uh, 1700s, their neighbors referred to their style of singing um, as being very unique. There are written references to the way they... the Anabaptists sang. The Mennonites abandoned that slow style in the 1800s, 1850 to 1880, uh, but the Amish did not. And, um, so today, most of the Mennonites can no longer sing those songs, where the Amish sing them every Sunday. Their songbook goes back to, I think, 1580 or 1590. Oh, it is the oldest continuously used book in um, in circulation their their song books do not have notation so the tunes are all learned by memory and hmm. passed on from generation to generation uh, which means there's gradually some variations in the way they are sung from one community to the next still very recognizable and easy to follow but the Lancaster Amish songs would be different than the Arthur Amish songs Oh, really? That's interesting. I would have never guessed. Um, when I had been uh, invited years ago to Christmas programs or end of school programs with the uh, this school across the road, I would get to try to try to sing along with them. And it's, there was always a male voice that would start that first note, and then everybody else seemed to pick up from there. Um, and I, it's kind of a haunting sound. I, and, and I haven't been to a program, I guess, the, I guess the school is shunning me for some, whatever reason, but I haven't been invited to a program for a while. But on a Sunday night, when the youth gather for their sing-alongs, 
when I'm driving by slowly and the windows are down and they're gathered out in a barn or a tent and I can hear that singing. It's just such a beautiful haunting sound. I just, um, if a person's never heard it, it's a, I, I can't really impart to people what it sounds like. It is interesting, isn't it? It is a very interesting sound. And to those who grew up with it, it's a beautiful sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, very slow enunciation of each syllable, uh, mm-hmm. meaning that in most of their songs, they will only sing two or three verses. Uh, because it would take too long to sing all of the verses. Uh, they have one song that is sung at every service. It's called the Lob Leap or the Love Song. And um, they, 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 I mean, that, that will take, you know, eight to ten minutes just to sing that song at the beginning of the service. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, you know, I've imagined what would happen if somebody... Well, one one other really interesting thing I'll make is they picked their tunes from what their neighbors were singing back in Europe at the time in the 1500s, 1600s, Hmm. 1700s when the songs were written. And so Hmm. some people can recognize tunes from uh, composers such as Brahms and other prominent European composers as those songs became known in the general society around them the Amish picked those tunes up and applied them to their songs. Um, mm. So that that identification has just more recently become known in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Mm. That is very, very interesting. This is part one of my conversation with Wilmer Otto. I hope you'll come back for the next session. It'll be in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Life on the Illinois Prairie, the undercurrents of our American life. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to Life on the Illinois Prairie wherever you get your podcast. Stay tuned for more stories, interviews, and updates. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Until next time. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.